0: of British history. The story of royals is the story of men. The crown, after all, was supposed to pass from father to son. Second sons, or spares, were important in case anything happened to the first son. Wives and daughters? Well, wives were there to bear and raise the sons. Daughters were useful as pawns in international diplomacy and often the means to enlarging a territory or a fortune. It's tempting, therefore, to think of mothers and grandmothers as simply a supporting cast. They're to bear, nurture, and encourage sons and support their husbands. But these women were often power brokers on their own, eager to shape and able to influence history. This month, during which we celebrate Mother's Day here in the U.S., we'll be celebrating mothers and grandmothers on the podcast. Of course, we will commemorate the tragic execution of Anne Boleyn this month considering how important May 19th was to both Anne and Elizabeth. We'll also look at the other mothers, as well as grandmothers, before and after Anne Boleyn. It's often said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And in royal history, that is often so true. For May and Mother's Day in the U.S., we've been looking at some of the well-known and not-so-well-known royal mothers, peeking behind the scenes at a couple of Tudor matriarchs and considering what the 19th of May meant to Anne Boleyn and her daughter Elizabeth. Today, we're wrapping up by looking at a woman who was often overlooked, even though she was considered by many a likely heir to Elizabeth I's throne and the grandmother that worked to shape her into a royal, Arabella Stewart and Bess of Hardwick. Making secret marriages, creating the right image, navigating court politics, and escaping in disguise, just another Tudor family story. Bess Becoming Grandma Elizabeth Hardwick, Barlow, Cavendish, St. Lowe, Talbot, who became the Countess of Shrewsbury upon her final marriage, is worthy of a full episode and then some. But for right now, we're focusing on how it was she came to be the grandmother of the young woman many considered to be a likely heir to Elizabeth I. And to distinguish her from all the other Elizabeths, we will call her Bess. Bess was probably born around 1527, based on later records, or perhaps a few years earlier. Her family were minor members of the gentry with comfortable but limited prospects. She married Robert Barlow in 1543, embarking on a strategy she would use throughout her life, marry to raise her status in the world. It's not clear she and Barlow ever even lived together, and he died the year after their marriage. Beth received a modest inheritance from this relationship. In 1547, Bess married Sir William Cavendish, who was about twice her age and twice widowed with two daughters already. Their marriage was a union of minds with both partners ambitious and determined to move up in the Tudor world. They had eight children, six of whom lived past infancy, including three sons to, dis- to secure the family dynasty. The marriage between Bess and Cavendish produced the Dukes of Devonshire, and Newcastle. One interesting factor of their marriage was that their properties were held jointly for both of their lifetimes. That proved very important when Sir William died when his eldest son was just seven years old and the property remained with Bess. Even so, Sir William's death created some financial hardships, so Bess married another Sir William, Sir William St. Lowe. He was extremely wealthy and a member of the new queen's household, providing Bess an entry into court life. She joined the court as a gentlewoman of Queen Elizabeth's Privy Chamber. In fact, she was one of the oldest members at age 31. Bess learned firsthand the dangers lurking all around the court, becoming drawn into the controversies regarding the marriage of Catherine Gray and Edward Seymour. When news of that forbidden marriage became known, the Queen suspected Bess of conspiring against her and sent her to the Tower. Bess was released and retreated in disgrace. Sir William St. Lowe died in 1565, leaving most of his estate to Bess. Now a wealthy woman, she decided to marry again. For her final husband, she chose George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. He was one of the most powerful men in the country, with estates all over the north of England. Bess herself had considerable property thanks to her earlier marriages. The Earl and Countess strengthened their ties by marrying their children to each other. Henry Cavendish married Grace Talbot, and Mary Cavendish married Gilbert Talbot, who became the Earl of Shrewsbury after his father's death. The marriage to Shrewsbury brought Bess back to court and eventually to the inner circle of Elizabeth I, as the queen appointed Shrewsbury the keeper of Mary, Queen of Scots. This initiated one of the most complicated relationships of Bess's life, caring for, watching, developing a possible friendship with, guarding, and protecting herself from the influence of the Scots queen. It also provided Bess with an opportunity to regain Queen Elizabeth's trust, as she and the Earl prevented Mary, Queen of Scots, from causing too many problems for Elizabeth. But that doesn't mean life was quiet and calm. At the same time she was monitoring Mary, Queen of Scots, Bess was taking care to increase her own influence. In some kind of collusion with another powerful woman at court, Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox. Bess arranged for the marriage of her daughter Elizabeth to Margaret's son Charles Stuart, Earl of Lennox. Charles was the younger son of Henry Lord Darnley, the once and murdered husband of the Scots Queen. Charles Stuart had a claim to the throne, so his marriage required Queen Elizabeth's permission, something that was not obtained before it took place. The couple married in November 1574. When Queen Elizabeth found out that Charles and Elizabeth were married, she was furious. She saw that union as a threat to her throne. At a time, she was facing other challenges from Catholics at home and abroad. Shrewsbury quickly began petitioning Lord Burley to help smooth things over with the Queen. He assured Burley that he and Bess were loyal subjects. But the Queen was angry. She had Margaret Douglas sent to the Tower and put Bess and her daughter under house arrest. When it became known that Elizabeth Cavendish was pregnant the queen realized this child would have a great claim to the throne Bess of Hardwick realized this as well she would now focus her ambition on this child baby Arabella Arabella becoming an heir from her birth in 1575 Arabella had a claim to the English throne As Queen Elizabeth was in her 40s with no plans to marry, the chances of her giving birth to an heir were rapidly diminishing. Some might even say had been extinguished. That represented the end of Henry VIII's descendants. Then there were the descendants of Henry's elder sister, Margaret Tudor. Margaret's son had been James V of Scotland. At his death, the daughter became Mary Queen of Scotland. Now she was essentially a prisoner in England, and her son, James the Sixth, was reigning in her stead. Many in England dismissed all these claimants as they had been born in Scotland and therefore were not considered eligible for the English throne. Certainly, Henry the had repeatedly dismissed his sister's descendants' claims but Margaret Tudor's daughter, Margaret Douglas, had been born in England, so had her two sons, Henry and Charles. Henry Lord Darnley had been murdered in Scotland, where he had become king by marrying Mary Queen of Scots, in 1567. Charles, Earl of Lennox, died a year after Erbella's birth. So from the death of her father in 1576, Erbella was considered by some to be the descendant of Henry the Seventh with the best claim to the throne. She was the great granddaughter of Margaret Tudor, the granddaughter of Margaret Douglas, and the daughter of Henry Stuart all born in England, and she had the right to the title Countess of Lennox, even though the Scottish government claimed her English birth made her ineligible for that. Still, Arabella would use the title sometimes herself. The jewels of Lady Lennox also should have come to Arabella, but instead these were taken to Scotland and given to young King James. So although born into apparent wealth and prestige, Arabella was denied access to her inheritance, and money problems would continue to haunt her. Arabella and her mother lived primarily at Hardwick Hall. Elizabeth Cavendish died in 1582 and Arabella became the ward of her grandmother, Bess. During this time, Bess was experiencing chaos in her own family as her relationship with the Earl of Shrewsbury deteriorated primarily because of the ongoing and trying presence of Mary Queen of Scots. Early in the Shrewsbury's assignment of guarding the Scots Queen, Bess and Mary, Queen of Scots, had gotten on well and famously had done embroidery together. And you can see some of their work at Hardwick Hall in the Victorian Albert Museum, and those links are in the show notes. (laughs) But those happy days were long gone. Mary was becoming a point of contention. By the fall of 1583, rumors were beginning to spread of an affair between Shrewsbury and Mary. The Scots' queen responded with stunning accusations that Bess had accused Queen Elizabeth of being, one, sexually depraved, somewhat reminiscent of the accusations about Anne Boleyn, and two, deformed and unable to have sex at all. It's likely that Burley kept the letter claiming all this from Elizabeth, but the rumors spread nonetheless. Mary later accused Bess of trying to arrange a marriage between Arabella and James VI. This might have been at least considered. It seemed a positive way to join the crowns and countries, and had been suggested as recently as young Mary, Queen of Scots, being the bride of young Prince Edward in the days of Henry VIII. But in the case of Arabella and James, the possibility came to nothing, and Bess was warned off future matchmaking schemes. Bess and Shrewsbury began living separately, with Bess moving back to her family home of Hardwick, Old Hall called that to distinguish it from what would become her grand Hardwick Hall in the future. From there, Bess kept in touch with Walsingham, Burley, Hatton, and Lester, her old friends. airbella was often with her grandmother and benefited from those connections. She spent time with her aunt and uncle, Marion Gilbert Talbot, as well. As she grew, Erbella was considered one of the leading contenders to take the throne after Elizabeth. Bess was raising Arabella to be a credit to herself and the family, and those visiting Bess were often treated to a bit of time with the young woman as well. Arabella continued in the tradition of female learning in that family, receiving a strong education in the classics, in language, and in art. She was also skilled in embroidery, much like her grandmother and Mary Queen of Scots. It's impossible to know how much time Arabella may have spent with Mary, Queen of Scots, or what she thought of her grandparents' famous guest. She would certainly have been aware of her grandmother's feud with Mary and would have realized that Mary, Queen of Scots, represented a danger to Queen Elizabeth. There were times Mary was kept in tight security, but at other times things were more relaxed and Arabella might have been able to spend some time with this fascinating and exotic queen. Eventually, however, the plots became more and more dangerous, and Mary, Queen of Scots, was transferred to the stricter keeping of Amias Paulet in 1584. Whatever she thought of Mary, Arabella certainly would have been aware of the danger and violence of the 1586 Babington plot. Years before then, Babington had been a page in the Shrewsbury household. After his capture and trial, he was hung, drawn, and quartered and the violent execution of the Queen of Scots would have made an impression on Arabella. In a final gesture linking Mary and Arabella, Mary Queen of Scots left her book of hours to the young woman after her death. The death of Mary Queen of Scots demonstrated the close relationship between power and danger. It also brought Arabella one step closer to the throne. Portrait of a Princess Arabella had an opportunity to do something Mary, Queen of Scots, desired but never achieved, meeting Queen Elizabeth in person. Bess brought her granddaughter to court, seeking to demonstrate the young woman's poise, glamour, and ability to be at the center of power. Being a shining star in Elizabeth's court was always a gamble. Shining brightly in support of the queen could tip into outshining the queen with disastrous consequences. Bess had raised Arabella to expect to be the center of attention, but the reality of court life exceeded her expectations. Arabella's experiences were positive, and the queen was pleased with her. It seemed that she was on her way to even greater heights. No one had made a better career of marrying her way to wealth and influence than Bess of Hardwick. The queen could insist on a single, li- a single life, demanding her court have but one mistress and no master. But for the rest of the country, a favorable marriage was a woman's greatest path to wealth and security. With her perceived nearness to the English throne, Arabella was seen as a prime target for men all over England and Europe. For more than 10 years, Her name was at the center of potential marriage alliances with all the major single princes of Europe. Arabella's family was determined to create the most profitable alliance for her and for themselves. There's a lovely portrait of Arabella held by the National Trust. According to the British Library, her dress and accessories, as well as other details of the painting, reinforce her status. I'll put a link to the image in the British Library discussion in the show notes. Erbella is painted in a black and white gown, simple in terms of the day and in keeping with the Protestant style. As she was associated with a Catholic-leaning family, including Mary Queen of Scots, that Protestant message and image were very important. She rests her hands on a table with books that represent her fine humanist education there's a dog lying nearby that represents loyalty. All of this can be seen as reinforcing her allegiance to Queen Elizabeth. At the same time, the portrait also includes elements of Arabella's exalted status. Her title of Countess of Lennox was proudly displayed, even though it was still in dispute. She wears several long pearl necklaces and jewels in her hair, All these emphasize her royal status, and her hair, worn loose and long, signaled her virginity and marriage ability. Bess of Hardwick commissioned this portrait to raise Arabella's profile at court and on the continent. Queen Elizabeth even said of Arabella, Look to her. She will one day be even as I am. But it's possible in all of this, Bess overplayed her hand. Perhaps the ongoing presence of the young, lovely, marriageable Arabella, who was expecting to be named as the heir, was too much for Elizabeth. Bess and Arabella were sent away from court from time to time. They did spend the Christmas celebrations at Whitehall, but things were changing. As Elizabeth and her court moved into the 1590s, Elizabeth's own star was waning. The celebrations of the Armada in 1588 were fading from memory as the Spanish kept attacking. Elizabeth's closest friends and advisors were dying, and the younger set replacing them showed less deference to the aging queen. Elizabeth was still attempting to manage her court and her family she used Arabella as a marriage pawn, controlling and limiting her time at court. After all those years of being shaped as a public figure, Arabella chafed at the quiet life. She resented the control her grandmother was exerting over her movements and how limited her freedom was becoming. As the years went on, Arabella's chances of succeeding Elizabeth began to fade. She felt exiled at Hardwick, away from court, and repeatedly denied the chance of making a good marriage. Her favor with the Queen was diminishing. There were rumors of some kind of relationship between Arbella and the Queen's favorite, the Earl of Essex. There were reports Arbella was attempting to arrange a marriage between herself and Edward Seymour. In fact, Arbella was interrogated at Hardwick Hall about this and denied any intention of ever marrying without the Queen's consent but it was clear she was falling further out of favor. Bess of Hardwick had cultivated powerful men such as Burley, Walsingham, and Leicester, but they were all dead. Their deaths affected Arabella as Bess attempted to cultif- cultivate their younger replacements, but they were less likely to support Arabella's Arbe- claim to the throne. Arabella's relationship with Essex, whatever it was, threatened her standing when his grasping ambition brought him to disaster. As the years went on Elizabeth's council turned their focus to James of Scotland as Elizabeth's heir despite Arabella's English birth and upbringing something made James more preferable his gender perhaps eventually Bess herself asked for Arabella to be sent somewhere else but queen elizabeth wanted arabella at hardwick where she could be closely watched as you might imagine this further damaged the relationship between the two women the reign of King James. When Queen Elizabeth died, Arabella did not inherit the throne as she had once hoped. But her life did improve, at least for a while. Arabella was invited to court to meet her cousin the king. She made a good impression and became a key member of the court, acting as train bearer when Queen Anne attended chapel. The king appointed Arabella as state governor to his eldest daughter, Princess Elizabeth, and Arabella became godmother to Princess Mary. Even so, Arabella was associated with suspicion and rebellion in the, quote, main plot, an alleged conspiracy of Lord Cobham and his associates, supposedly funded by the Spanish government, to replace the king and put Arabella on the throne. This investigation implicated Sir Walter Raleigh as well. Arabella avoided suspicion by sharing everything she knew with the investigators. Still, she was not happy at the new court. Which she found much less refined than Queen Elizabeth's. And she was frustrated as the king continued to deny her the opportunity to marry and have a family of her own. The final years of Arabella's life with her grandmother had been increasingly difficult. Bess had nurtured her granddaughter into a young woman prepared to take the throne when Queen Elizabeth died. But the longer Queen Elizabeth lived, the less likely Arabella's chances became. Eventually, Arabella felt like a prisoner in Bess's care. When Queen Elizabeth died, Arabella had ridden off to court, never to return to her grandmother's care and keeping. In the early months of 1608, Bess of Hardwick was in her 80s and her health was rapidly failing. Arabella traveled to Hardwick Hall once more, but did not get there in time to say goodbye to the woman who had been such a central figure in her life. Arabella arrived on the 17th of February four days after Bess had died. She spent some time at Hardwick saying goodbye to servants and gathering personal possessions. Arabella's life after her grandmother's death became one of increasing contradictions. She was suspected of involvement with plots at court, but the king forgave her and she was part of court festivities in 1610. In processions, she followed the queen and princess Elizabeth in order of precedence. As fourth in line for the throne, she could not marry without the king's consent. And as Elizabeth had for all those years, James continued to deny Arabella the chance to marry. Finally, she made plans of her own and married William Seymour, Lord Beecham. He was sixth in line for the throne through the line of Mary Tudor and Catherine Gray. The couple married in secret and then attempted to hide their relationship. When the king found out, he sent William to the tower and placed Arabella in the custody of Sir Thomas Perry. Such a union might produce an English-born heir, which James felt represented a threat to his claim to the throne. Arabella wrote several letters begging for pardon. The queen and Princess Elizabeth requested leniency for her. Instead, William was sentenced to life imprisonment in the tower and arabella was to be sent north to the bishop of durham arabella's health delayed her journey at barnet and she took advantage of this raising money and planning a daring escape william would be smuggled out of the tower and she would dress in disguise and they would flee together to france arabella dressed as a man and was able to flee to kent but william did not arrive in time to meet her where they were supposed to rendezvous her ship set sail for france and william who had managed to escape from the tower, took a later ship headed for Flanders. Arabella's ship was in sight of Calais when it was overtaken by King James's forces. She was returned to England and imprisoned in the tower. William, well, he escaped. Even though she was in the tower, Arabella was not charged with a crime and continued to hope for release. She was convinced she would be able to attend the 1613 wedding of her relative and friend, Princess Elizabeth. She even went so far as to order new dresses and jewels for the occasion. But the king did not relent, and Arabella remained a prisoner in the tower. She began to lose hope of ever being released and took to her bed in 1614. She may have stopped eating, and there's always the rumor of poison. In any case, this woman, who had come so close to the throne of England, died in the Tower of London on the 25th of September, 1615. In a final gesture of punishment, James I refused to honor Arbella with a royal funeral. Ironically, she was reunited in death with her equally troublesome aunt, Mary Queen of Scots. Both Arabella and Mary died in prison, were denied the throne, and were buried together. They were also united by a woman who was not of royal blood, but who managed to die peacefully at home in her bed, Bess of Hardwick. It was Bess, the non-royal, who's ultimately known as one of the richest and most powerful women in the kingdom. Thank you so much for joining me for this month of mums and grannies And Daughters and Granddaughters, what a great time exploring these relationships. Stay tuned next month as we look at a few of the fathers and sons, brothers, and other family dramas playing out on the public stage. Thank you for joining us for this discussion of Mothers and Grandmothers of British Royal History. I hope you are enjoying your mom and grandma this month. Please take a moment to subscribe, like, rate, and share the podcast with a friend. Thank you, thank you. And I'd love to hear from you. Let's keep shaking up history together.